Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, mate, and our very first for 2021 mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, for the second time in three days this year, mate, we are on fire, is the doctor, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, buddy. Happy New Year. Thank you, man. And you too. Of course, we did our first podcast of the new year on Friday. This is our second one, two in three days. That means we have to do 200 this year or something. Maybe we'll, we'll change the ratio, I think, as we get closer. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> we can change the ratio anytime. Two every three days might be a bit too much for us to do. We'll try and get a couple of weeks out for the rest of this year. We'll start the way we mean to go on, of course. And as I do uh, tend to do in, in, in uh, these cases, I am going to raise the curtain, lift the curtain a little bit. We are, uh, of course, recording this in advance, mate. Neither you nor I are sitting in front of our computers on the 3rd of January, but we are here in spirit. And as I said in the past, we want to continue to bring some great foolish insight and uh, analysis, ideas, suggestions, education, all the good stuff that we tend to do to our listeners and I gotta say, mate, I'm I'm not sure whether to be pleased or not pleased that our mailbag episodes seem more popular than our regular podcasts. I'm not sure what that says about us or our listeners or the content, but in any case, we are but happy servants for our members and our listeners, and they like mailbag, so we bring them mailbag every single week. All right, buddy, shall we kick on? Let's kick it on. All right. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. First mailbag question of 2021 goes to Murray. Murray says, hey, fools, thanks so much for all the info you provide each week. It is so interesting to learn about things that are far bigger than me that have an impact on my life that I might not realize is happening. Now, I actually quite like that from Murray, mate, not because you know we're necessarily doing big things, but I kind of like the idea that the concept of investing and the kind of the things that you learn about life and business and the economy and stuff, it's kind of a nice lens to view the world in some ways. It's not the only lens and it's not even the most important lens necessarily, but it's a nice way to kind of think about the you know, things that happen around us in the context of some of the frameworks that we um, we get from, from the investing landscape. So good point, Murray. All right. Murray says, question for the podcast. I was listening to your thoughts on QE recently, quantitative easing. Man, should I have started our brand new year with a quantitative easing question, mate? Probably not. Anyway, Murray, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, and he says, and I was trying to get my head around how to think about it as it relates to investing. And again, that framework coming into play. He says, would this make sense? My theory is that printing money or QE is similar to a company capital, company capital raising, I should say, creating shares by diluting shareholders. Essentially, the impact of QE is that more money in, or shares in the analogy is, are created, but the value of the existing money or shares decreases. Further, QE is done to stimulate the economy, thereby increasing GDP, which could be correlated to the economy's market cap. Assuming all of this is true, couldn't we think about QE in terms of a capital raising and repaying debt in the same way as a share buyback? If that is true, it might help people understand more easily why the government borrows money at times and why it doesn't at others. He says, am I close or am I way, that's, I've got eight A's in there, way off the mark. Hashtag full on, hashtag Australia Limited, cheers Murray. What do you reckon, Doc? QE, money printing, capital raising, same thing, different thing? Well, I like the analogy. I, I think it's good it, 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 it makes sense in a, in a lot of different ways. I mean, mm. Mm, uh, GDP, I don't, like I mean, uh, probably is closer to 
maybe sales <laughs> than to right. market cap, yeah. um, which you know, so basically it's showing whether there's sales mm -hmm. growth or not, or economy growth in some form. So that that's the only comment I would have, and it's. So I think conceptually, if you think of mm -hmm. the government as a company, which is in many ways the government is a company, then the government, whenever it is basically saying, I'm, um, I'm going to raise debt or print money, effectively it's saying I'm going to dilute existing shareholders, shareholders being the <laughs> citizens of the country, which with somebody, again, uh, debt is owned by some other people. It has to be paid by the company, which means effectively the shareholders, so somebody has to pay at some point in time, I think is the right sort of mm -hmm. framework. Um, so I think it's a it's a good framework, maybe with the exception of the about the market cap link. Mm -hmm. um, does it? I mean, the the problem is that you can't really look at GDP number as a PE ratio or anything like that, right? And it is the other thing is that the economies grow over time, so. It's just like companies grow, I guess, over time. So, mm -hmm. and then there's a question of just like with any company, capital allocation skills, right? I mean, if the, the 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 key difference being that different governments are different CEOs at different times, or different governments and different prime ministers are CEOs at different times with different capital allocation skills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, yeah. So it's not that's like the same. Yeah, so not like the same company with the same you know CEO and management team mm -hmm. over long periods of time. So I think those are, would be the differences, but yeah, like I mean, and if everybody's doing uh, money printing, then well, everybody is debasing the currency at the same rate, which means we're all back to square one, in effectively, in many different ways. I like that talk. I um, no, I think it's right. I think so. Look, <laughs> Murray, you, you've given the, so the favorite nerdy economics kind of concept is what they call stocks versus flows, right? And so the a store of wealth is a stock, right? As, and literally not as in a share, but so a stock, a, a kind of a, a collection of wealth. So if I had some money uh, and I had it in a bank account, that would be the stock, right? That's the, the amount of wealth I have. The flow would be my income and my expenses because they come in and out each time. Whatever is left over goes to increase the, my stock of wealth, but whatever gets spent or received in a given year is the flow. And so to that point, as Doc says, um, absolutely printing money QE is absolutely a stock question because there's a certain amount of shares a certain amount of cash if you increase that then you dilute what's left that's absolutely true I think that's a really nice analogy and again as Doc's already said the the profit or the sales GDP they are you know GDP is not measure of how much wealth we're creating it's a matter of how much stuff happens and like everything if we you know if we earn $100 and spend 101 we're not wealthier by $100 we actually go backwards by a dollar right so if we spend a bit more than we earn no matter how much we earn if we spend it all we go backwards or at least hold steady. Equally, if we only earn $2, but only spend one, we're still ahead by a buck. So it's not so much the flow as in the GDP here, but it is absolutely a, 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 you know, a good way to think about it. I think the, the only thing I would say, Doc's already kind of referred to this as well, the debt thing, again, is, is more like company debt than it is like share buybacks, right? So um, it, it, yeah, as Doc said, again, it has to be paid back, whereas a share issuance does never has to be paid back. It's just simply always more shares. Now, you can buy it back, and to some degree, when the government's reversed QE, when they let those bonds effectively, if they ever happen, if they let those bonds effectively um, mature and then don't reissue more money, that would be the buyback. That's where you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to pay this back, but I'm not going to have more 
to replace it. And so that is the closer to the buyback kind of in a scenario where a quantitative easing, more bond buying just simply doesn't happen. When the bonds mature, they simply just stop the train there. There's no nothing to replace it. And so the government balance sheet shrinks. And that's probably the, the better example, I think, of the share buyback. Um, when it comes to... I guess, you know, um, I think you're right about, you know, why the government borrows money at some times and why it doesn't at others. More useful to think about the household balance sheet, I think, than, than a company. Um, and they're imperfect. But for example, buying borrowing to buy a house um, would be a scenario where we'd incur debt that in theory is a productive asset, or at least in this case, a lifestyle asset because it's worth something to us and we slowly pay it off over time. Um, that's probably the more useful way to think about the government debt than maybe the companies itself. I, I like the kind of analogy on investing, but in this case, more like the household. Um, you know, put some money on the credit card, you borrow it from tomorrow, you've got to pay it back at some point. Um, we, we can't, of course, at a household level, uh, print money. And that is where QE is kind of more useful, I think, um, than, than, than uh, the company example is more useful than the household example. But yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's a funny merge of the two. And of course, without getting too ideological or theoretical about it, um, governments have different objectives, of course, rather than companies, right? So a company's objective largely, and, and there's a lot of argument this at the moment, by the way, um, but the, the, the broad objective is to make money for its shareholders. Um, in this case, the government really isn't in the business of trying to maximize budget surpluses year after year after year after year and creating a whole lot of kind of government surplus that the 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 the, um, the, uh, um, the citizens don't get. It's probably more it's probably more more worthwhile to think about as a not for profit entity because things like, for example, government surpluses should be probably be lower over time rather than higher, given the choice, assuming it's balanced budget, because uh, you want to have some of that benefit going to the taxpayer in the way of tax cuts or increased services spending and stuff like that. So you're kind of, you're benefiting, you almost want to have not too much profit in a government sense because uh, you want that benefit to go through, as I said, increased services, increased facilities, more infrastructure, or less tax, that kind of stuff. So it's good good, um, good conversation, good framework, just a little bit, not, not quite as analogous as it might otherwise seem. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add, Captain. Mate, we had two questions from a Scott. Different Scots, weren't me, promised, last week. We had another one for another Scott. So Scots are bringing it. All I'm saying, mate, is we've had, so we had three questions from Scots and none from Anir Barnes, so I'm, I'm winning. Um, we, uh, we got a question through during uh, last week from Scott. He says, I've got a question for your excellent podcast. Excellent, we like that. Beta shares, and we talked about this a little bit um, last week. Beta shares have announced they will bring out an equal weight index ETF for the US S&P 500. The ASX ticker will be QUS. So the large tech stocks the doc loves so much will have a smaller part than if you bought a standard 500 S&P index. My question, is it a good thing or a bad thing? My first thought is that it is good as it's not too reliant on one or more industries and companies. But second thought is it's minimizing the role of some of the index's star performers. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Scott. Now, Doc, we talked about this a bit last week. We talked uh, week four, sorry. We talked a little bit about equal weight indices and the way they might work and how they kind of come together and times when equal weight might give you a better performance than than a in a market weight and vice versa. I'm curious, just given Scott's question, we kind of answered that. So hopefully, Scott's heard that part of the answer. But I'm curious to your thought on diversification when it comes to indices. So having an equal weight share of the index, and we, again, the Australian example is a useful one. 50-odd percent of the ASX 200 by market cap are banks and miners. I dare say if we did it by equal weight, that 50% would fall to something closer to, I'm going to say 15%, something like that. What that would do in the Australian context is give us a whole lot more diversification 
at an industry level, a, a geography, a category, whatever it is, like, you know, the, the idea of bringing the small companies up, of course, it changes the overall returns, but and we talked about that last time. But just from a, from a pure diversification perspective, do you have any time for that idea that maybe it sort of rebalances our exposure closer to maybe closer to the broader economy, closer to the idea of kind of the, the types of businesses that are out there, um, less tech in the US sense. In Australia, it would mean less banks and miners. Is there enough value or any value in there for a diversification perspective for you? Or you, do you think, as Scott suggests, that maybe it it does reduce the impact of some of the index of star performers and maybe is a net negative as a result? Well, I think the answer depends. Like, I mean, uh, it, it <laughs> depends. Does, unfortunately. Well, it, it, unfortunately, it depends because, yeah. like, I mean, it depends whether you want more tech exposure, you want less tech, tech exposure. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. depends what what exposure you want. Um, I mean, my portfolio is probably ninety nine percent tech, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty diversified. But it's it's mm. it's all diversified in that one sector, uh, large sector. So I I don't know. Like I mean, it it really like again. Like I mean, you could be in the financial sector, for example. But be tech, mm. by, for example, by by investing in fintech, right? Like, is fintech tech or is fintech finance? Uh, right. I, I, mate, can it, I tell you, I hate some of those descriptions. I. It's funny, you know, because tech's a weird tech's a weird term, right? I mean, I think I've said this before, but you know, fifty years ago or thirty years ago, tech would have been, I don't know, you know, VCRs and and uh, and jukeboxes. Fifty years ago, it was photocopiers. hundred years ago, it was cars. The, the, if, you know, if we only talk about tech as the most recent new thing that we haven't yet got another name for, um, it's hard, right? I, I, I can't work out whether it matters or not. Honestly, I'm, you know, yeah, it's really hard. Like, I mean, the best companies, but what does it mean? Yeah, exactly. And tech could be consumer discretionary, right? I mean, you just said cars, right? right I mean, right. cars are cars are discretionary. VCR is def. Oh, well, when it existed, at some point, it became a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, became a consumer discretionary item. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what is the iPhone? Is it tech? Yeah. Or is it right, consumer right. discretionary, right? I mean, right. so I think it largely, like, here's my bigger problem is mm-hmm. indices have to put a label. It's like, you know, if I say Scott is a value investor, like, what does that really mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. I'm just putting a label on you for no good reason. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and it's like that. Or Warren Buffett is a value investor. Like, what does right, that really right. mean, right? Well, so yeah, I think, I mean, even the definition of value investors, right? I mean, in 1930, <laughs> the Ben Graham value investor versus the... 1970 value investor versus the 2020 yeah. value investor, I dare say they're almost unrecognizable. Exactly. So I think something, exactly. And your examples, right? They're perfect examples of where, you know, something was in some continuum of the technology and it became mm. something. So mm. so I don't know. Like, I mean, I think I like to think it, the, broadly, I think the question might be if it depends on the in the particular index and it depends on what the index holds. And then is then the question becomes, like, do you want to diversify to an equal weight mm-hmm. version of that, or do you want a yeah. concentrated version of that? Like, I think in, in like I think you would agree with this that for the ASX two hundred, I think both of us would probably say an equal weight version has a higher chance of doing better than a market weighted version, at least right. in the in the medium term, right? So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah, it. Exactly. That yeah. that's a yeah. view based on again what the index has and the companies inside them and so on and so forth. So I, th- I think that's the answer. I mean, this is why I find it difficult because it's really hard to mentally separate pure diversification from expectations of market performance. And we're supposed to, right? Like the idea of the, the, idea of the, the broad-based diversified index is literally 
a passive investment. I mean, those who originally promulgate them and, and, and recommend them, and, I, and frankly, I put myself in that group, not originally, I'm not that old, but, um, you know, for the no-nothing investor or the, the scared investor or the investor who just wants to just get, just, you know, the market without taking risks or spending the time, whatever else, like whatever, you, whatever your reasons, if you're saying, look, I just want to, I don't want to pick stocks, I want to just get an index investment. I, 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 I still can't work out which one I want people to go with. I mean, it's tempting to say market index because at least you're getting the reported number. So when you see the ASX 200 or the All Lords on the news every night, you know that's what you're getting. Once you start to make a change, and and that's kind of considered the default, but there's no reason it should be the default other than it is. If market weight was the default, we're having this argument about a, a market cap weighted. Uh, so if equal weight was the default, we're having an argument about market cap weighted. I, I wonder what our views will be. I wonder if my view would be different, quite honestly, of you know, taking the status quo as the default and therefore that has some incumbency benefit versus the new up-and-comer. And what do I think about that? I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to think if you want passive, stick with market weight because that's what we used to. But then there's no reason why we've talked about disruption a lot the last couple of weeks. There's no reason why you know we should go with the existing just because it's the existing. That might be the the very very worst thing to do. And so I, as you say, then you think about okay, well if you think about performance, which one's going to perform better? And once you start asking that, you're saying, well, I'm giving up the idea of passive. I'm going to I'm going to make some you know some considered bets on what I think is going to do better. And then the further you do go down that line, the further you move away from passive, and it kind of, it's a difficult one, right? It, 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 I, I can see myself tying myself in knots. I could, I could talk about it for an hour, and I'm not sure where I finish up. I'm not going to, by the way. Um, uh, so I, I kind of, I, I really honestly don't know, mate. I, 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 I'm trying to work out which one I, I think is the best option for the passive investor. As you say, I can't divorce myself from performance. So in in the ASX, I've said for ages to people, I think index investing is great, but I've never been, I haven't for years been able to recommend the ASX 200 ETF because I keep going back to, yeah, but you end up with 50% of the banks. And then I say, yeah. okay, well, what about an equal? I think to myself, what about an equal weight? Maybe that would be better. And then I start to think, well, okay, am I then sort of, you know, betting on other companies and, and then am I making an active decision of trying to, you know, maximize performance? And the more you do that, the more you get away from passive. So I, I don't know, mate, I, I've, I've just said, absolutely nothing because I've come to no obvious conclusion but I think I want to go equal weight but I, maybe if the banks were only 20% of the market I might choose a different view I, I, I can't say for sure you know like broadly too right you know as I like to say what's we, we talk about market right? but what's the market right for right. for, <laughs> exactly. so, for that, that's another question right yeah. like I mean in Australia there's a market there's a market in India there's a market mm-hmm. in Brazil there's a market in South Africa right so right. market I mean I think a lot of these a lot of the things uh, I think it's, it's just historical what I call it, appendages right you know we yeah, have totally. appendix yeah. but we don't use the appendix uh, <laughs> um, and it's not very useful in, in that sense yeah even yeah. the market is not very useful like I, right. I think if somebody had to define a market today I would say the market is the all world index. Yeah, right. right? Probably, um, you know, hedged to your currency. (laughs) That's probably what. That's that's probably what would be the market today, because that's something that everybody can invest in, and it could be currency hedged. Yeah. And and that should be like you know, and that's how you reference everything, and then you can think about everything else in reference because your reference is important, right? Reference decides what you're going to do. Well, particularly if you particularly the choice because you can invest in the reference. That's why it's super important because you can simply say, I don't know. About stock, I'll buy, I'll buy the index. The fact the market exists, the reference exists as a as an investable option. You literally can just do that and go go and go fishing or go shopping. So you know there there is a real off option of of simply opting out and say I'll buy the index. Thanks very much. Um, I think you're right. I I, just, I won't I won't go too much down this path, mate. For what it's worth, arguably I'd say even hedging might be 
you know, not not the market because you know the value of the currency matters to some of those returns some of those companies are getting, and so you kind of do end up, you know, you can go to multiple levels of abstraction before you come back to some sort of reasonableness. Um, it's a it's a difficult conversation. I might we might move on unless you've got anything else to add because otherwise I'll I can I can I can ponder this for hours and bore the hell out of our listeners. We can we can have a one hour podcast about the <laughs> index, the market, yeah, equal exactly. weight, and I think we have lo- already lost a few uh, few listeners. So that's one. Oh, you can hear them switching off. All right, let's move to. <laughs> question from Russell instead. Russell says, hey, Scott and Doc, thanks for a great podcast. You're welcome, Russell. Thank you, mate. In this COVID environment, going for a morning walk and listening to your podcast has replaced driving to work. That's guys. I've been a member of SA for a number of years now. That's Share Advisor, the service I run, and have benefited from some very good stock calls. Oh, good. I'm glad. Tell you what, Russell, you're Uncle Russell, are you? Um, Anyway, he says, I have a question that I hope you may be able to answer in relation to buy now, pay later companies, please. I don't own stocks in this space. One reason is because I struggle with the thought these companies are making money from the people who can probably least afford to make the purchase in the first place. I feel a lot of these people will probably end up over their heads in debt and should probably only be making purchases when they can afford to pay the full price. The second reason is that I can't help but think BNPL companies, buy now, pay later companies, are another type of Ponzi scheme. Purchasers will only be able to use this service until I can no longer afford the regular payments. The BNPL companies must therefore continue to find new customers or <laughs> victims, as he says, to grow profits. How long do you think these companies can continue to grow before then there are no new customers to be found and everyone has a BNPL debt? Full on, cheers, Russell. Great questions. All right, let's go to the first one first. Let's go with his first reason. He says, first reason, I struggle with the thought these companies are making money for people who can probably least afford to make the purchase in the first place. A lot of them will end up over their heads in debt and should probably only be making purchases when they can afford to pay the full price. Now, you and I, I'm pretty sure, would recommend our listeners always, always, always only spend money you can afford to spend unless in absolute emergency circumstances. So we're not fans of credit card debt. We're not fans of personal loans and that sort of stuff. Um, If you can't afford it, you probably shouldn't buy it in most cases. Emergencies happen, and some people are struggling. So I'm not gonna not gonna make a value judgment, but as a as a piece of financial advice, um, I think you'd join me and say that people shouldn't uh, buy stuff they just simply can't afford. Try to avoid the use of that sort of stuff if you can possibly avoid it, or at least, as with credit cards, pay out the amount off in full. Now you've got the cash to back you up. So don't borrow from the future. That said, is it ve- is it reasonable, Doc, to worry about either ethically or commercially the fact this is, might be built as a sector on people who can't afford to pay the debt? Now, at one level, ethically, arguably that's wrong. Uh, commercially, that doesn't sound like a great business model because at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost, aren't they? What do you reckon? So I was, going to, I was thinking about this. I think this is a fantastic question from Russell. Thank you. So I was thinking, you know, if Russell is a home homeowner and he's thinking of selling his property, he shouldn't sell it for a high price because somebody else may not be able to afford it, right? I mean, <laughs> the entire property market is exactly example example of that. <laughs> so where right. everybody's buying stuff that they can't afford mm-hmm. or borrowing against stuff that they can't afford. So I think... Yep. Um, so the analogy for, for that might hold also for the property market. So maybe we shouldn't be trading in property. would be my answer um, for that. Uh, you'd have to love this. I brought property into the mix of this, right? Um, yeah. So like, look, I think it's to some extent, this is a more like it, it, it's a morality question, right? And morality questions are not that useful for investing. Like, I mean, Cigarette companies exist, they sell cigarettes, they're bad for health, or, or at mm. least that's what research seems to suggest. But yet governments allow them to sell and they make <laughs> a profit and they can be very, very profitable. So 
uh, and by not investing in them, I don't think, I mean, you know, if you if somebody doesn't want to invest in them for ethical reasons, that's fine. Yeah. But if there's a profit to be made and you, you know, as an investor in a secondary market, you don't want to make mm. the profit, then, you know, it's, it's basically akin to saying that I'm not going to sell my house at the highest price possible because the other person is going to take on too much debt. Well, it's their problem at that point. If they can't mm. pay for it, the bank will take it from them uh, or they could, you know, declare bankruptcy, whatever they want to declare, right? So it's like, it's yeah. a, yeah, it's a, uh, I'm being ruthless capitalist sort of in that sense. So that's, you know, well, it exists and no, if there's fair. a, yeah, that's I think the answer to the first Very part. Fair. At least that's my. I will I will agree with you, mate. I think Russell, I, I've I banged on about ethical investing before, mate. If if as Rox says, so secondary market means in our circumstance already listed on the ASX. In other words, it's not raising new capital. We're just swapping shares between you and I and everybody else. Um, doesn't matter who owns them, the company's going to do what it does. So you can feel bad about making money from that, and you can not own them. That's completely fine and completely up to you. But the company's going to do what it does anyway. And someone's going to make the benefit, make the profit, um, regardless of, of of whether you own the shares or Doc owns the shares or I own the shares or John Smith or Jane Smith owns the shares. So, realistically, I think um, my, my personal view is it just doesn't matter. And there's no there's no real reason not to own them. You can choose not to because you feel icky about it. That's completely okay. Um, but the shares are going to exist either way. Someone's going to make money either way. You might as well own the shares. Um, I love your house price thing, Doc. I think that's a really, really nice way to look at it. Quite honestly, um, so we uh, the, the only the only commercial area I think I would just you know have a think about. I don't use ethical concerns when considering the companies I buy or the companies we recommend, with one exception, which is it's not an ethical concern really, but it's a, it's a function of it. If those ethical concerns impact what the cool kids these days call the social license, so if for example Russell's right and a government or regulator decides that BNPL is actually bad for people and they should restrict its use, then there are circumstances where the extension of Russell's thinking might lead to a less profitable business if things were done. So, Russell, I think from a, a you know, if you're worried people not be able to pay it back, then they're going to do it. You know, they, someone's going to own the shares, the company's going to exist, unless and until, as with cigarette companies or other things, the government steps in and says, yeah, no, 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 we want less BNPL or there are more regulations or something. So it could impact the commercial success of those businesses if you had that view as a result of the extension of your question. You could absolutely say, so for um, casinos are a great example, right? So I don't own any casino stocks. I probably, I wouldn't necessarily dislike owning them, but they exist. Um, you can say, for example, that Crown was a great business to buy um, however, the fact that it was doing things that were arguably according to Chinese law, and I don't want to get into that one, uh, wrong, and people were arrested and jailed for things they did and they've stopped doing them. Was it wrong they did, you know, they had junkets out of China enticing people to gamble? You can make your own ethical view. But commercially, that was a bad business strategy because when the government clamped down on it, it hurt their business. And so there's kind of that extension. So if you worry about that particular part of it, that might be too long a bow to draw based on your question, but that's the one area where I would say, if you think your concerns would lead to adverse regulatory action, it is worth thinking about. All right, Doc, second question. Are they a type of Ponzi scheme? Russell says, purchasers will only be able to service this, so use this service until they can no longer afford regular payments. BNPL companies must therefore continue to find new customers or victims to grow profits. How long do you think they can continue to grow for before there are no new customers? Is uh, buying up pay ladder a Ponzi scheme, mate? Are they, are they running out of customers? Oh, it's not really a Ponzi scheme. So all it is doing really is, so, okay. So if you step back, right? If you think about people's mm. lives in general, people spend almost everything that they earn um, <laughs> in, in yes. one form or that. Now, it's, I'm not saying like it's, it's on average, I think this is true. Yep. Um, 
Oh, by definition, now, yes, absolutely. But, but on average, this is true. In fact, it's encouraged by the government. Government wants everybody to spend everything. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so that everybody can get into trouble. Uh, so that the yep. economy keeps moving, right? It's a very, it's a, it's a very <laughs> circular logic to think it about is. this good for the economy when everybody's actually going to be in trouble at some totally. point in time. Right, totally, yeah. but but you know, so but so you <laughs> extend that idea, and that's basically what be, be, uh, buy now pay later is, right? I mean, somebody's working, you know, you know, here in Australia, we get paid every like fortnightly. Uh, yeah. This is actually a unique thing in many ways to Australia, right? If you've, if you've lived in other parts of the world, they would say that you get paid monthly, right? Yeah. Now, because you get paid biweekly, what happens is people's payments are organized in that in the two week cycle right yeah, and yeah. and if if somebody wants to buy that five hundred dollar um, expensive you know I don't know um, bag for example as an example mm-hmm. for the lack of it, or shoes then yep, yep, yep. you know they could spread that payment out over say four to eight fortnights right which is basically just saying I'm gonna pay it in installments and the buy now pay later is just mm-hmm. enabling them uh, to buy it and it's capping the debt at a certain level that people can have. And if you can, if you can keep that, if you can make those repayments, you're able to use it again. So you're able to cycle through. Right, so, yeah. so a couple of things are happening in buy now pay later. A, it is tapping that market, which traditionally has not been tapped for debt, uh, for credit, uh, by credit cards. Right. So you know. A credit card might say, oh, I don't like your employment, I don't like your cash flow, and therefore I'm not going to give you a credit card. But buy now, pay later is saying, well, I can give you a credit card equivalent for $400 if you, as long as you're making me a payment on time. So that's number one. Yeah. So it has, so it's, it's basically increasing credit in the market uh, to certain groups of people. Other groups of people find the hassle-free way of obtaining credit and then, you know, by by showing payments over time, you know, increasing your credit limit without actually going through those, you know, hassles of filling a form and, you know, getting a credit check done and all the other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is attracting that. So there is there is a couple of different things happening. One group of people who were uh, disenfranchised from credit, another group of people who love the way uh, of um, shopping with this, another group of people who have discovered that there are specific sales available to buy now, pay later, Customers like there are shopping gateways for buy now pay later customers online, right? So, three different avenues creating a lot of opportunities for market yep. expansion, right? Yeah. It it hits a ceiling when you've run out of customers, but but you know the world has what eight nine billion people. Um, you know, if, if everybody's going to be using buy now pay later, or even half of the world is going to be using buy now pay, later, forget that one-ninth of the world is going to be using buy now pay later that will still be one billion people so yeah, it's yeah. it you know at some point everybody runs out of um market yeah. <laughs> opportunity yeah. uh, that's a long way from here and you know maybe by that time they'll invent you know if the company has to survive that long and is doing that well it'll mm. probably invent something mm. else right so so yeah it doesn't it doesn't worry me in that sense nice uh i can't add more to that russell if you look at the growth of credit cards uh, they've been going for 40 odd years now, still growing, still more money being spent on credit cards, cash still more than half of money being spent in Australia, let alone around the world. Um, plenty of opportunity for their BMPL. I don't own any shares, by the way. I haven't recommended any. Um, I think we have, you have some docker and some of yours. We've got ZipPay, one of the other services, but um, it's one of those, It's you know, if, if it's if it's going to succeed or fail, it won't be for lack of market opportunity. It could be, I know, man. I, I, I'm gonna hold. I'm gonna feel the whole sector could be a hundred times the size and still not hit any size constraints. If it can, 
if you get enough, you know, potential volume, there's so much transaction volume out there to be gained. If you know, I'm gonna say it will be 100 times the size. All I'm saying is it could get 100 times the size and still not hit any limits of of market opportunity. Is that fair to say? Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. I mean, you know, <laughs> give or take a bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Doc, I have a question from Colin. Well, well, Colin, see, Colin starts a little, a little uh, aggressively. Can I say? So Colin starts, Scott and Doc, I hate you guys. And then a couple of winks. So I'm going to assume he's, uh, I'm going to assume he's, he's having a, a lend of us and I'm going to keep reading. Colin says, well, so I hate you guys. He says, <laughs> mate, I, I swear, he's, he's absolutely sucking up to us. Here we go. You are younger than me, have been investing longer than me. The mistakes you have made are further in the past than mine. Your business knowledge is far better than mine. And you are so much more handsome than I am. Uh... <laughs> So I think he's I think he's almost I think he's almost serious until that last one. Then he starts to um, get a bit over the top. Anyway, he says. However, since the value I get from the podcast is infinitely better than the price I pay, I thought I would send you a few questions. Well, okay, Colin, you've, you've sucked up enough. We'll, we'll answer your questions. All right. He says one of the one of the stocks you regularly nudge me to buy is the BetaShares Nasdaq ETF trades on the ASX. He says I'm topping up as I type. How often do fund managers like BetaShares release new shares? Are they the major sellers or printers of their own shares? This is a pretty straightforward one. Um, what happens with ETF units? Mate? How does how does that work? Well, the ETF units basically, they, you know, they they hold the underlying right, and then they create units out of it. If they need to, if they need, if the if there's more dollars flowing, they'll basically go and buy more of those underlying, and the units will be created. Right? It's not. It's not. Yeah. So in this case, there is no money printing happening really. <laughs> So yeah, no shares being bought or sold. Well, they're being bought or sold between individual people, um, Colin. But the the money, effectively, as you say, if 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 one day the number of people who wanted to buy invest in this bit of shares Nasdaq ETF doubled, they would literally create twice as many units, and they would buy twice as many of the underlying shares as Doctor. They buy more Apple, more Tesla, more Microsoft, more everything else. Just keep out buying, 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 and over that period of time, it doesn't it doesn't change the value of the ETF units per unit. We call them shares. They're officially units. So per share per unit doesn't change. Uh, just they simply create more of them because the fund itself gets larger. It's like if you if you have a bank account, you put more money in the bank. Uh, the bank doesn't really create any new stuff. It just holds more cash. Um, and so it's kind of it's a similarish kind of response to that. Motley Fool Money financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, question two, Doc. A recent US Motley Fool podcast commentator said the bond market is much bigger than the share market. That's true. As a result of low interest rates, bond managers and other fund managers are flooding the demand side of the share market and they're bumping prices and P's to scary levels. This will probably continue for several years. So Colin asks, will this change or alter your strategy over the long term? And how and where do you think the foolish philosophies can take advantage? And then he says, my guess is extreme opportunities and Doc rule my world. Uh, I think he's sucking up again, Doc. I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, um, you know, I think it's fair to say the central bankers want people to go and buy shares. They want to push us up the risk curve, to use a horrible cliche. Cash in the bank doesn't do anything. They want people to go and buy shares, to invest in businesses. They're trying to prompt economic activity by doing this. The lower the rate is for cash, the more you've got to find somewhere else, any, some opportunities anywhere else. 
Do you think, mate, that is pushing people into shares? Is that pushing shares up to unreasonably high levels? Uh, so no. So uh, well, uh, okay. So I'll, I'll, so I don't know what he what the comment about demand side of the share market uh, means, but I think saying more money's going to flood into the markets. So they're going to add to demand. Yeah. People are moving out of bonds into shares. Okay, but here's the thing, right? As more money printing is happening, the so the Federal Reserve in the U.S. or the RBA here, they are not out here trying to buy shares or they're not trying to actually get people to buy shares that's not their objective really right because they are more they're more interested in in economic activity and by economic activity mm-hmm. they might mean many different things right they might one of the things that they often mean is that they want money to flow but but money to flow does not mean money flowing into the share market money to flow basically means mm-hmm. businesses that want to borrow money are able to borrow money so that new opportunities are created right so so i think right. I think the interest rates and all being low and effectively means it's easier to borrow money. There's less reasons for people to hold cash and they might be willing to give cash to riskier assets. Shares are one of them, but from the intent or for all intents and purposes, it's really they want the money to go towards businesses, right? And the share market, as we have just said, uh, you know, it's typically a secondary market, right? I mean, there's some capital raising that happens in the market that results in money flowing to companies. But otherwise, there is no money directly flowing. Like Apple is never getting any money from the share market, right? I mean, yeah. all this trading happens, but I know Apple is not using any of that. It generates enough cash of its own, right? So I think it's it's that. So I think the uh, the way I look at this is you can you can think of how why the the stock market share market has gone up in terms of relative valuation valuations might look scary but what happens is people are looking at past information saying oh the PEs used to be 20 mm-hmm. okay the way I like to think of this is I look at this as an earnings yield so I just invert the PE yeah. and I say 1 over 20 basically means 5% right yes. so the earnings so yield coming of PE of 20 has an earnings yield of 5% so that's you know Hundred over whatever the number we're starting with, right? Yeah. So, so basically, it yep. means it's earnings yield of five percent. And let's say historically mm-hmm. PE was twenty. However, at that time, maybe the bond rates were three percent. Right. So effectively, the difference that you're looking at is five minus three, which is like two percent difference. So basically, people were paying a two percent premium on an mm-hmm. interest level to uh, to get buy shares, buy the riskier assets. Mm-hmm. Now, if the interest rate is actually 0%, <laughs> then to get to a similar level of difference, mm-hmm. you you yeah. might actually be willing to pay you know, somewhere close to a 50 PE because one over 50 Correct. is a 2% yield and the 2% yield is effectively the same, right? So, Correct. you know, the, the PEs are scary if you're comparing with historical, but you're not adjusting for historical um, uh, bond rates so to speak, right? Correct, correct, and if you yep. if you don't adjust for historical bond rates, it'll appear that it, it is overpriced or, and so on and so forth. So that that's a very important thing to bear in mind. Now then, the you know, I'll actually ask a question on his behalf, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to round this round this up. And the question might be, well, okay, what happens when the interest rates go up? Because then you would expect the PEs to compress, which is true. Right. But exactly. if that's going to happen ten years from now. What you really need to think about is in 10 years, what the E is going to be, <laughs> what the P is going to be. And if the E yep. is substantially, if the market economy is being stimulated and the E actually substantially expands, 
even when the E, the P or PE actually contracts, maybe it's not a bad thing, right? Because overall still at that time, over this intervening period, you still made money. So it's not that the PE goes from 50 back to 25 or something like that, that you're gonna lose half your money because the E will actually have changed in that time. So all of those things, it's you know, it's, it's a relatively hard, it's, it's a hard exercise to think about these things. Uh, but yeah, as long as there's earnings growth, then you can actually afford to. So I think what is dangerous is if there's no earnings growth, paying more for less earnings growth on less to no earnings growth is dangerous, but paying more for earnings growth is okay because even if the PE contracts in the future because of the the, the bond rates changing, you might still be fine. So that's, that's sort of the framework. Nice summary, Matt. I like that a lot. I think it's absolutely true. Um, I, I I will the only thing I would say Matt, is I don't think PE seem to have expanded as much as the bond rate has fallen. Is that fair? Because I, I I don't there's no sense that given the proportion of the fall, so there's there's the number of percentage points. But as you say, losing going from five five percent to three percent earning yield, for example, or two percent, uh, you know, PE from twenty to fifty is not the same as you know, rates falling by two percentage points. It's the fact that rates have effectively fallen by more than half. Um, so you know, falling from nine to seven is different falling from five to three, right? The the proportionality is much different. We given the way the maths works, so there is some element of that. I I, I think it's fair to say, ironic. Maybe it's even possible to say shares are even better value now than they were five years ago, um, in a relative sense, because. The P's haven't gone up anywhere near as much as the bond yields have fallen in that proportional sense. Is that is that a reasonable sense? Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to allude to my example without actually saying that. I was leaving that for that. that that's a bolder assumption. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was leaving Scott Phillips to do the bolder <laughs> assumption. <laughs> he just, he just you've, you've done a very nice thing to me. Thank you, mate. You give me the opportunity to sound smart based on just stealing no, no, your idea. So thank no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I think I think I again I don't know the answer i think you're right because again like by my maths i would think pe should be near 50 or 45 but pe is well, right, much near, higher right yeah. at least 25 yeah. or 30 or something whereas it's gone from 14 to maybe 16 or 17 like it's not at a total market level it's been it's up nowhere near as much as otherwise maybe should have yeah. arguably so, been given the circumstances yeah so i think that, that is like you know again i would mm. just caution people that you know just because we are saying the peas can uh, expand just don't go buy any <laughs> anything yeah, that seems right. to have but but yeah like i think it, it makes it and, and yeah how long is this going to be this road of low P's, right? I mean, what I don't yeah, even know what will happen if we go to a negative E, a negative interest <laughs> rates. <laughs> things get really broken really fast. Yeah. Mate, last will, question, yeah. and this I like the way Collins asked this question. So here we go. In the year of COVID, he says things have changed rapidly. Some CEOs and companies like the Motley Fool have reacted brilliantly. That's I. I agree with you, Colin. Uh, our boss is wonderful. You should pay us more money. Um, <laughs> we've done okay. <laughs> he says, in many ways, this has helped investors see the excellent leader's abilities to change direction quickly and also note how well some companies have already prepared for unforeseeable events. In your opinions, which CEOs and which companies get the best and the worst ratings? Now, he says, could you focus first on the best? Then, Scott, stand back and watch the doc ride his wild high horse. So I think Colin's expecting you're going to have some uh, some terribly tough things to say about some poor CEOs who've done a less than stellar job, Doc. But uh, let's uh, let's 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 uh, in, let's uh, value Colin's question. Are there any particular CEOs you think have done particularly well this year? So not just 
ordinarily well. They're already good people, blah, blah, blah. Are there any standouts of kind of responses or results or anything, any highlights that have come from this year specifically that are worth mentioning? Um, well, I think a number of CEOs have done a good job in terms of, you know, uh, coordinating and helping with the pandemic and things like that. So a number of them have done that. Um, nice. In terms of, I'm just trying to think of in terms of standout, any company which has actually done, here's the problem. Some companies have done well in this environment because the environment has been suitable for them. Right. right. So I don't know whether I give credit to the environment or give credit to the CEO or give credit half half. Right. That's the problem. Um, in mm. fact, you know, if I had to give credit, I would be thinking about a, a company that is in a difficult circumstance. So I'll actually pick one. This, this will surprise you, Scott. Uh, <laughs> I think. So I'll, I'll give you one ASX example. I think the travel sector has been completely like decimated and been in a difficult situation. Like you know, given the capital raises and just the um, just the sheer degree and amount of dilution that has been introduced, right? However, if you look at the if you look at the AS, I'm just talking ASX specifically. If you look at the ASX overall, then uh, Jamie Ferris in uh, in uh, corporate travel has actually managed thus far to navigate without diluting shareholders, right? And that's, that I think, fake, given what's happening elsewhere around the ASX, not just in travel, by the way. Yeah, like so. So I, you know, whatever I might think of the company, I have to say that I have to give him credit for, you know, for navigating this in a way that has potentially saved his, himself in it and his shareholders from. And me, for the record, exactly. Uh, which, which could, yeah. Like I mean, you could get the type of dilution that you know you're never going to get out of the hole, like in the next five years. So I think that is a pretty like you know that's whether you call it uh, the depth and uh, capability of execution and difficult. I'll give him credit for that. I think. Um, I, I think yeah. He, the other. Uh, yeah, I think I think on the ASX I'll give him credit. The rest of the stuff, those people who have been uh, done well, I think their business was in a position to succeed. Would be you know. So I, I think I'd pick pick that largely circumstantial rather than acts of a commission as such. Yeah, like I mean, less planning, like. You know, like so, like I think what has helped corporate travel, for example, is that its balance sheet was not in a state where it had to go begging with a with a bowl, mm. right? And that, that you don't want to be in a position like that. If you're in a position like that, then you're stuffed, right? So, so I think uh, I think I'll pick that as as uh, really good handling of a di- very difficult situation. And would you say this is say rather than being a great twenty twenty? you know kind of i mean this i'm sure there's some work being done in 2020 by the way and sort of a lot of work to keep things afloat but is it is this more is 2020 the year where we see to use warren buffett's expression of um you know it's only when the tide goes out you see who's swimming naked is is this is 2020 been the year of results for the the actions of the past or do you think there's been this has been a year of actions themselves that have made a difference so you know i'm, I'm sensing from your view that and you've said this before on the podcast that you know those who, who came in with rough balance sheets didn't have many options and so it was more the results of the 17, 18, 19 years that all of a sudden getting found out in 2020 rather than 2020 actions per se. Is that fair? Yeah, like, yeah I think that's fair. So, like, one of the things, uh, 
I think what I have taken from this, and I don't want to take any lesson. It's, too, it's always easy to take a lesson and make it like a hard and fast rule. But like I've been always been a bit of a fan of companies yes. that do good capital balance sheet management, right? You know, it's always good. It's okay to have some cash that's not doing anything. That is cost yes, of capital. Correct. But right. man, there is nothing like yeah, cash. Yeah. It is. It yeah. gives you optionality, right? And we can think of, oh, it's burning a hole, but it's such a big optionality to have. It is, it is basically, you know, and in this case, I think it makes, so I think that. The other thing I will say is what 2020 has done is it has given immense acceleration to some trends that were mm. already in action, right? Mm. And those businesses have benefited immensely. And I can, I can name many, but I mean, they were all sort of at the right place at the right time. They were already very good in execution. And then 2020 basically fell in their laps and they went, oh, oh, okay, now we can sort of, you know, we could, so, uh, so one of the things I like to say is digitization, which was already on its way to happening, the companies that were in a good position to digitize or help digitization, they're basically seeing f- five years advancement happening. Right? Yeah, right, makes sense. So, so I think that sort of thing, uh, I, I think I think has, uh, has happened and what else can I think about in terms of execution? I, I think again, Elon Musk would be right up there. I mean, if somebody, if, if somebody's business could have gone completely broke, it would have been Tesla's. The business didn't go broke. In fact, it uh, it has basically cemented itself as sort of the leader in sort of what's going to happen next. And I think you know, again, that's very good execution. That's right, um, right. a combination of maybe bravado and execution. But <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's the amount that's, that's the other thing, right? We got We've got to allow for circumstantial stuff like you know the, in, in different circumstances different businesses have, you know we've done very very if the panic hit in 2016 or 2022 there'll be a whole lot of different businesses that succeed or fail accordingly based on just dumb luck or, or, or you know um, the, the position of their businesses in terms of the life cycles that kind of stuff uh, absolutely absolutely so the, I mean there's always a every business has um has you know in in a civilization there are points in time in which you know things are weak things are not working out like but you know if I think if I if I if I was a fly in Musk's wall I would say you know like 2020 when everybody's had a difficult I mean 2020 is not without challenges for for Musk but man right, it's, the, right. it's the it's the year where they've commissioned the spacecraft mm. the spacecraft has carried people <laughs> twice yeah uh, you know Tesla is an S and P 500 it's you know the largest automaker mm-hmm. then you know generating you know it's everything you know people around the world want them to operate you know open their factories you know it's like even though whether it's china or berlin or texas or yeah so i mean i think again uh so there are he's had a good year yeah he's he's had a great year i i really struggle mate i i have to say i i probably i probably foreshadowed my own answer by asking you the question as you were talking but i can't immediately think of a particularly great pivot or a kind of specific action by a CEO to respond to the crisis specifically in the sense that I can't think of a particular business going, you know what, we should do X. I will say, you know what, One, this is going to sound really strange. Um, wasn't there that business been advertising on Facebook recently that was a stage king's? This is like not, not listed at all, right? So just I'm just going to throw it out there because it's just a – they deserve props, by the way. Stage kings made – props and sets for films that got completely shut down so they moved to making home office furniture which i just i just thought was a really you know, good on them like you know really really cool story of 
they were going they were going to get broke. They had no choice, right? You make you make stuff for films and stages. I mean, there was no there was no, you know the arts industry has been decimated, and so they just basically pivoted on a dime and said, you know what, let's go and make home office furniture rather than stage sets. Um, so you know th- that's the kind of thing where you go, wow, that's really cool. Like you know, good on them, and I hope they're successful. Um, they deserve to be, right? No one deserves to get smashed by a pandemic that they didn't see coming. Um, and if these guys can do well because they managed to, you know, <laughs> make a massive pivot and do well, like that's awesome. So you know, like uh, you know, business, did businesses specifically change things or respond to the pandemic specifically? I really, honestly, mate, I'm probably missing a dozen of them, but I can't think. If I think through the the big companies, the ASX, no one really changed their business in a meaningful way and an active way to right size. I, I will actually, ironically, I mean, I own shares in Corporate Travel, as we know, and Webjet for the record. I will give some props to Graham Turner, actually. Now, getting himself to this position, I'll go back to balance sheets in a second because I agree with you, and hence the Warren Buffett comment. They pretty much they pretty much entirely remade their own business model. They've shut down, is it two-thirds of the stores or something that will effectively never reopen? So in terms of never wasting a crisis, arguably, if they can get themselves out of this, they've... They've, you know, rather than saying, well, let's, start, let's try and get reopened and, you know, try and get back to normal, they've, they've, they've smelt the smelt the breeze, sniffed the wind, whatever we say, uh, and they've, they've pretty much just re, you know, reset their entire business moving forward to be very, very different to what it is now. That takes some guts, that takes some thinking. Still might not work, by the way, but that's, that's a, you know, it's a reasonably gutsy call. Um, they should have more cash on hand, which is your point. I agree with that. But I, I, can't think of a, I can't think of a really good example of a business that actually has genuinely changed its business to respond, either capitalize or to save itself in a meaningful way in the ASX 200. So it's a hard question to answer, Colin, I have to say. Um, I think Doc Bates mentioned businesses that have actually put themselves out to help people. I think that's awesome. I think that's exactly what we expect of our businesses. I will give a massive rap, by the way, outside business to, to the government, federal government, who've done a spectacular job responding to the crisis in the only way they could and should have. Um, now, you know, do, do you get good marks for just doing the right thing? Maybe not, maybe you should. Um, but the government effectively abandoning the balanced budget ideology, the back in black stuff to do what needed to be done. I think they deserve massive credit for that. Um, they made some mistakes. I, I hate the early access super scheme. Um, I think it's atrocious. But in any case, they did what they had to do. Um, delaying the super increase, I think is also atrocious. But um, the broad crux of what they were, you know, they had to do, they did. Uh, but I really, I mean, I honestly can't think of a business that's done in 2020 specifically, given where they started the year. Now, I will absolutely say, as you said, um, as I said, and Buffett's comment, you, you find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So who doesn't have enough cash on the balance sheet is number one. And hopefully, moving forward, a whole lot of businesses have learned a whole lot more about that. But I can't honestly, I can't pick any individual business in 2020. If we said, okay, let's only consider actions from the 1st of Jan, I really struggle to come up with really good or really bad business decisions, actions, outcomes, realistically. Can you think of any in the good or bad boxes that really are standouts in terms of things that changed or were different or done differently because of COVID? Uh, well, not specifically. Like, I mean, some uh, some companies were, were uh, you know, sort of quick to do things like, okay, you know, even before governments announced restrictions, some companies were quick to say, work from home. Some companies were very quick yeah, to right. yeah, a- adapt. Um, you know how they run their stores uh, whether they would close I mean some companies closed their stores even before there were any lockdowns um, so a lot of things like that yeah, I, th- I think you know some companies decided to uh, uh, you know provide gear. so I mean a lot of stuff companies I think from a social um, social goodness point of view did a number of things yeah, yeah. Um, 
But That's fair, yeah. yeah, most of these companies were, were typically the very large, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, large corporations with significant balance sheet capability and so on. With you know, with the with the ability to sort of maneuver like that. Uh, so that, at least on a global scale, and then yeah. I guess locally. I mean the local banks. I mean the the banks did uh, did a fair share of. I mean the banks did a fair share of heavy lifting, right? Uh, with the willingness yeah, true, to yeah. uh, willingness yep. yeah, that's to right. yeah. willingness to mortgages. yeah. So I think yeah. yeah. I, I think all the, like again, I don't know that's whether cool. yeah, a, yep. yeah. I don't know whether any of these would be called standout. Uh, yeah, right, right. But but there were actions that were taken that have in some form or the other. Uh, helped people overall so i don't know i think i like that uh, they're good examples they're good examples I think, yeah i think you're right across the board and um uh, yeah you got to you got to say corporate australia and from frankly corporate america and corporate world but you know for out from our perspective came out coming this pretty well right no one no one really you know everyone everyone did their bit everyone kind of pulled together and did what was kind of needed to be done in the most part i'm sure there are examples as well people companies that didn't do it but I don't know if, you, if I think it's I think it's very worthwhile as you kind of infer to take some really nice positives out of this whole saga, right? We wouldn't have wished that anybody would have rather not had the conversation or the experience, but in the in the event, most companies have done reasonably okay. They've made good decisions. They've they've done what needed to be done. Um, I will say this is probably actually in direct contrast to your overall point. It might be argued argued that some of the um, retailers who took a fight to the landlords have done. If not uh, even necessarily a good thing, did the right thing by shareholders. So Solly Lou, for example, from Premier Investment, stepping up the the fight against Westfield and others to say, hey, we want to renegotiate from on, from a company, from a shareholder perspective, probably the right thing to do. We can argue whether that's reasonable or how it should have end, ended up. Maybe there's a some argument there potentially. Um, otherwise, just say Corporate Australia doing a pretty good job. Any more on that, buddy? No, I think that was a long answer. It was. Well done, Colin. Thank you, mate. And he finishes up by saying, by the way, thanks, thanks, thanks. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. You have improved my life so much, but I still hate you. Full on, Colin. <laughs> thanks, Colin. That's great, mate. Hey, Doc, um, do you know much about uh, direct investing? Direct indexing, sorry. Direct indexing? I have no idea what that means. So we got a question through, and I'm not, we're not going to spend a lot of time, from Tim. Um, and Tim talks to me, he says, good morning, fellow fools. Being at the junction of investing in digital technology, I thought you'd be the perfect people to ask about the potential boom in direct indexing and companies listed on the ASX that could benefit. It's an interesting idea. So basically the idea of, of, of direct indexing is allowing people to generate their own index effectively based on certain criteria or conditions. Um, and the sense that as a... As an, it's kind of like a thing about indexing meet robo-advisors, meet individual investing. Um, and that's kind of the question being asked about. I'm... <sighs> I I, for, I will say for what it's worth, I'm not a big fan of the idea. Um, for reasons I've said many, many times before, but effectively, if you're going to index, do it passively. If you're going to be active, be active. Um, I, I kind of feel like this is almost the worst of both worlds, right? And you can guarantee someone's going to take a cut of fees on the way through for providing this air quotes service. Um, I, I mean, I guess if you desperately didn't want tobacco companies, you want everything else, you might want to be able to create your own index to exclude them. Or if you wanted a, a greater weighting to tech, in your index, I guess being able to do it. There's no harm in having the features. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I don't. I just can't imagine that it creates net benefit, mate. Other than the people who create the software. Uh, any, any, any instinctive thoughts, or we just move on? No. So I was, yeah. So I, when you were talking about, it, I was just thinking this. This sounds very much like a fee grab <laughs> opportunity. It? it really does. Yeah. Yes. So the statistics. Sti- I'll give you some statistics just because while no. you were speaking, I thought I could. Well, I could uh, run a Bing search. Um, no. So you from, came up with nothing. So you tried Google. 
I know. I came up with something. Uh, <laughs> you know, Bing should start really paying me some money. All right? <laughs> they really should. Wait, like, the only person who uses it, you got to be worth something to them, surely. Exactly. And I'm talking about it in a podcast. <laughs> they, they, they really should be paying me. I reckon I, this is the only podcast this week talking about Bing. Is that is that a reasonable assumption? Do you reckon it's Bing has mentioned any other podcast around the world? Yeah. So, if, you know, I hope Satya Nadella is listening to this <laughs> podcast and he's going to send his Bing uh, SVP to me. And uh, maybe, they can, maybe they can sign me up as the mascot for their Bing uh, thing. But anyways. They really this, should. This is what I got what from Bing. tell you? Bing tell, told me that according to Statistica, there are mm-hmm. there were seven thousand different ETFs. Now I don't know whether this is worldwide or in the US, but let's say seven thousand different <laughs> exchange traded funds. Like yeah, I mean, yeah. how much more customization do we need? We all you need is an ETF searcher. You know, search the ETFs, and you should be able to get your indexing. So I don't know. I'm with you on that. By the way, I mentioned on the back of that, there are more <laughs> ETFs in the US than there are individual companies. There we go. So, so I'm with you on that. It sounds like somebody has come up with another it's way to. Uh, maybe what they'll do is they'll come up with a mixture of different ETFs and give it to you, and then charge you on top of the ETF oh, fees. <laughs> there so. is honestly, there is no industry better at separating people from their money than financial services. For an industry like ours, it's supposed to be about helping people. Uh, there, there are well, I mean, it was when was the when was the book written? Where are the customers' yachts? The uh, the story of the of the stockbroker or the financial advisor taking his mate down to the the wharf. So look over there. That's they're all the yachts that are owned by all the stockbrokers and financial advisors. And the mate, apparently, I'm sure it's apocryphal, turns to him and says, "But where are the customers' yachts?" And uh, that probably is the the story of finance, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's finish with a question. A couple of questions from Dean Doc. Um, well, it's been a good uh, hour for our first podcast or first mailbag podcast anyway of 2021. Mate, uh, Nick's got a couple of, sorry, Dean, I know I keep saying Nick. Dean's got a couple of questions from the uh, for the podcast. The first one, he says, I've heard that roll-ups are not very good businesses to invest in. Why is that? And do you have an example of a roll-up that has performed well and a roll-up that has performed poorly? So let's start with that. We've got a second question next. Why are roll-ups considered bad businesses? Oh, okay. So I'm going to change the question by saying that not all roll-ups <laughs> are bad. Uh, just well, like, why are they often considered to be dangerous things? To well, like roll-up basically means so roll-up basically means you're going to be acquiring things, right? And you're rolling them into your business, and you're growing basically by acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically, like the usual problem is if you're a small business and you acquire another small business. So let's say you're earning one dollar of um, in earnings, you acquire a business that's going to add twenty cents of earnings to you. You acquire it at a at a good multiple, which means there's not enough mm-hmm. dilution, or you paid some cash that resulted in your earnings growing by twenty percent, right? Yeah. Now. Typically, when you're small, you can find other things that can allow you to grow via acquisitions. But when you sort of hit some sort of scale, then you need to make larger and larger acquisitions or larger and larger roll-ups to actually get the growth, right? So if you don't have organic growth, but your growth is only coming via adding things, then it's difficult. At some point, this doesn't work, right? Um, so, so that's I think the reason why people would say roll-ups are bad. It's not necessarily the case. Some people are roll-up specialists. Um, we talked about corporate travel. Corporate travel has done a, a bunch of acquisitions. So far, it seems to be working for them. Um, so that's an example where it has it has worked. Will it work in the future? Is always a question mark that we we can't answer um, definitively. And yeah. I mean, if you want something at a larger scale, I mean, uh, Salesforce has done a number of uh, acquisitions over the years. It's it's almost like an acquisition machine in that sense. 
it has grown into billions so again things are possible the this there was a roll up was that um was it ABC Learning or something? Was that a roll-up? Uh, it was ABC, yes. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, if you roll up and then uh, you have debt and things like that, so, you know, things can fail. So there are examples of stuff where things have failed, uh, again, for no mal, not necessarily malintent. Another one that, you know, uh, Experience coded a number of Experience Code, a small sort of, uh, and, you know, again, sort of a roll-up where they were acquiring different things and that didn't really work out because again always the risk is you get sold something or you buy something that's not as good as it, it seems to be um, and things like that so that you know Scott would probably have more qualified um, and better more nuanced answer for this I doubt it very much <laughs> um, Doc, I will I will add a couple of things I think um, Rollups get a bad reputation because they've been done badly. And I think that there is some – no, I own, own shares in corporate travel, as we talked about, and it's done really, really well. But it's very, very worthwhile being cautious where you find an industry or a, or a sector or a strategy that tends not to work more than it works, right? So, there, you know, be a little bit careful here because it has a bad reputation for a reason. ABC Learning was a roll-up that blew up. Um, there are plenty of others, arguably um, – even the likes of retail food group, uh, you know, having having bought lots of franchises and then and then blowing up, um, the the reason is because often these roll ups take on their own momentum in a bad way and end up even with the best of intentions going badly. So you should absolutely be seriously cautious of roll ups. Don't avoid them for the sake of it. Just recognize what they are, understand what they are, and how they work, and how it all comes together. So often roll ups use lots of debt, and that absolutely risks the business. Often roll-ups are combining lots and lots of small, distinct businesses that maybe they're being overpaid for because they suck. Maybe the businesses just suck so badly they actually lose money even after they're bought. So there are lots of ways. You know, if you've got an existing business and you're, let's say you're Coles, right, and you buy a couple of IGA supermarkets, you tack them on. There's a very, very good chance you can pay a decent price for them. You only buy them if it makes sense. It's not your core business and you go and turn them into cold supermarkets, you put your pricing in, your staff, your processes, and it goes really well. If though you are one IGA supermarket, so you say to 25 other blokes, hey, let's all get together and turn this into, you know, Doc and Scott's supermarket emporium. And so you do that, and there's 25 individual ones with no real processes and systems, but you figure you're bigger and better as a, as a large business. All the bad stuff... <laughs> In any of those businesses, can actually dominate the rest of the, com- the company, right? It can you can actually you know aggregate the bad stuff rather than aggregating the good stuff. So there's there's really really good reasons why you got to be super careful with roll ups. The other thing, by the way, is financially, either like with ABC, like, so with GA Education is another one actually. Well, it hasn't blown up, but they use their own shares as 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 capital as as payment until the shares weren't worth much, and the whole thing unrolled because you couldn't use more shares to buy more stuff. And so the whole growth tra- uh, trajectory, the growth strategy was based on let's get big, let's get really ho- overvalued by the market, use that capital to or those shares to buy more stuff. Um, you know, the the strategy itself can simply stop working if you can't use those shares or you take on too much debt, as I said. The last thing is roll-ups, and this is one of those things where the company's blamed a lot. I reckon one of the biggest problems with roll-up stock is not the company, it's the shareholders. <laughs> because as you kind of already pointed out, GED education is massive. It's, it was something like about... 20% market share, right? Now, if you've got to go from one center to two, if you want to double in size, you add one center. If you've already got 10, you've got to buy, buy another 10 to double. And that's kind of hard, but okay. If you've got 100, 
we're going to find another 100 to double again. And so your growth rate, if you're only aggregating, must slow the bigger you get because there's less out that you can physically buy. You just can't make enough difference anymore. Now, if your business is predicated on, we will grow through acquisition specifically, and the market believes you're going to keep... GA Education shares were seven bucks at one point. They're now less than a buck, Doc, I want to say. I might quickly just Google that while I talk. Um, that you know, that's So the problem is so much... You know, yes, it's the company. It's also the investor. It's the investor who says, I'm going to pay a fortune for this because look at this growth, $1.17 the shares. Oh, there you go. Um, if, you, if you spend that time, that long looking for that growth, it doesn't come. Then what happens? The shares crash. Now, the shares don't even necessarily crash because the business sucks. Just because the market's paid way too much for a company that had no right paying that much for because they simply extrapolated too far into the future. So those are lots of reasons why you've got to be super careful. Now, all of that said, they can also do really, really well. Now, corporate travel, I, I always have to use an example, Doc, because at some point, a bit like good to great the book, right? At some point, the companies do badly and people look back and they say, I told you you were wrong. But for as much as corporate travel has been and is successful, it's done a few things right. The first, it had a really good base. It's acquiring smallish chunks of business that are you know, 20% of its current size, which is still big, by the way, in, in absolute cent terms, but, you know, not, not trying to double in size by acquisition overnight. It's buying businesses that it believes have the same culture and approach as it has itself, and that it can use to actually aggregate and grow its total sales. And then it's putting its own systems in place. So it's effectively acquiring customers and revenues and staff to, to make itself bigger. And so there are areas where, you know, you can actually get scale, you can actually deliver, and again, and they're paying a decent price thus far. So as long as those things hold, as long as it doesn't get silly, as long as it doesn't throw Hail Mary passes, it should be okay. But it's a roll-up. It is riskier than a business growing organically. Apple's grown organically for years. I mean, it bought Beats, Headphones, Doc, and it buys lots of little things to kind of add, add ability, but it's kind of bulking itself up, right? It's, it's making itself bigger and better and uh, broader and giving itself more capability. It's not trying to grow just by acquisition in and of itself. And so you're much, much safer owning a business with with organic growth rather than acquired growth because that acquired growth, A, can stop and B, can be done badly. You pay too much, you buy the wrong business, the business sucks, you you, know, you get sold a pup, all that thing can possibly happen. So that's why <laughs> there are examples and there's a couple of examples for you, Dean. Doc, second question from Dean is, my next question is about capital raises. When raising capital, why do some companies raise money just via institutions and exclude retail shareholders? Is there some advantage for the company to exclude retail investors? And he asked another question about share purchase, which I'll get into in a second, but that's the main question, Doc. So why is it some businesses ignore us and just go to the big end of town for their money? Okay, so I, I'm actually probably in the minority in this. I actually think that... Uh this retail cash raising thing should be gotten rid of entirely. Now, mm. I'll, ex uh, I'll explain to, you know, <laughs> it, I'll explain why I think it's actually a net positive for retail shareholders that it disappears. Um, okay. So here's the thing, right? The biggest um, stock market in the world in the US does not have any retail. Mm. Um, and I always like to ask if the biggest and the better and the bigger or whatever not don't do it, why do we do it, right? And and. To be different is not a good answer. To be, uh, to be, um, you know, fair is also not a good answer because trying to be fair sometimes can actually cause unfairness. So I'll explain what happens here. So some companies, if they have, if companies are raising money from retail shareholders, there's always a bit of an uncertainty with whether or not the money will be raised, when it will be available, and it it elongates the cycle of raising money, which generally can be avoided. 
if you basically say, well, this is the price and we're going to either, you know, do at the market raise or raise it at a few other places. Because if a raise happens quickly, in that case, the company gets the amount of money it needs. And effectively, while your shares or your percentage ownership of the company has been diluted, you would see that well, the company got the cash it needed for the purpose it needed. And if you invest in the right company, that's actually going to work out well for you. So uh, that's my preferred reason. Some companies exactly precisely try to avoid raising capital via, um, you know, share placement plans exactly for that reason, because it creates a lot of variability, noise, unnecessary difficulties, longer uh, trading pauses and so on. Like t- trading pauses, like a very ASX thing, you, you could be raising money in the U.S. and there's no pause. That why does the market doesn't need to close unless for uh, for an, for a very specific reason something unprecedented but here you know market closes because you know a company is busy raising money for like two weeks right <laughs> that is bizarre so so that's the reason i think um you know or you know shares get suspended because again that's bizarre because they get suspended so so i think that's the reason that some companies have decided that they're going to avoid that to make it easy to raise capital make it quick to raise capital and and i think that's that's just fine. You know, if you've invested in companies that are doing well, they're raising capital for the right reasons. If they're able to raise the capital quickly, all good. So that's, I think that's the nutshell reason. It's just the difficulties with raising capital via, you know, the, 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 the final point might be like, I might be a shareholder, but I might not actually have money to raise capital yeah. uh, or to provide to capital. And that creates variability for companies. Yep, spot on, mate. I, I completely disagree with you in terms of uh, retail shareholders having access to share purchase plans, but that's okay. Um, I, I think it's I think it's fair that I actually I would actually change the rules to make sure that companies have to offer it to everyone on a pro rata basis first. Um, I, I don't see there's any if I, you know tra- treating different classes of people differently is is pretty unfair generally speaking. I think I I have no problem changing that, um, but that's okay. We all have different views in terms of the why. Doc's absolutely right. Particularly if you make if you make an acquisition, if you agree to pay a billion dollars to buy something, you know, you want to be pretty sure you can get the money. It's, it's like making a bit of auction before you go to the bank and, and sort your sort your uh, your finances out. You, you don't want to come up you know a couple hundred million dollars short and go oops got, a, got the deal's got to fall through because we can't raise the capital. So if you can get it from the institutions, you know with a couple of phone calls you can raise the money you want. You don't have to worry about the variability of the individual retail shareholders. Maybe coughing up, maybe not. Um, that's a pretty decent reason to do it. I will say there's also a um, a decent argument, Doc. I'm being too cynical. Um, the the brokers and the fund managers and the companies like to kind of scratch each other's back a little bit. And if you can do a nice deal for you know one of the big fund managers or one of the big institutions, they might come and help you next time you need something. So there's probably a little bit of a uh, little bit glad handy, a little bit you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I I won't say that about any individual company because I don't want to go to court, but I'm relatively sure there's a little bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, let's all help each other here about that. Is my is my speculation, but. Uh, I won't, I won't ask you to do that. Um, Dean also adds another one about the share purchase plans, mate, to say, why is it not always done as a renounceable rights issue so existing shareholders are not diluted or disadvantaged? And that's probably a bit of a, a same question that goes to the same point you just made and I've just made in different directions. Um, often it's just a simply an easier thing to do. Dean, um, it takes longer to do a renounceable rights issue. Um, often the money is not, the rights aren't exercised, so the money often falls short as well. And frankly, the share purchase plans are largely a bit of a sop to retail investors. You know, okay, guys, you can have something over here too. I've raised 80% of what I want from the instos. Um, I'll let the retail guys have a, have a little bit. So the company doesn't really care that much generally. Sometimes they do. How much retail money they get raised, it's almost one of those things. We guess we have to do it, so we'll do it. We'll click, we'll, you know, we'll get half a billion dollars from the instos and 
We might get 20 or $30 million over here from the shareholders, but who really cares? So uh, it's easy not to. I will say, but this is a bit of a corporate travel one, Doc, and not my intention, but corporate travel has in the past where possible, I think almost always with maybe one exception, raised capital through a renounceable rights issue, which is absolutely gold standard if you're going to do a share purchase plan. Um, that way it lets people who don't want to participate actually benefit and not be diluted by a capital raising if they don't take part. And I think that's absolutely the smartest and most intellectually honest way to do it. Any more thoughts on that, buddy? Uh, no, I have nothing to add. There you go. Fools, that's it. That is the end of our very first mailbag edition for 2021. The first of many, many more to come. Another 51 or so, Doc, I'd reckon. I haven't counted the Sundays yet, but uh, I reckon we're about 2% of the way through the mailbags for the year. How's that? On the third day of January, we're already well and truly in the win column. We'll take that, won't we? Absolutely. <laughs> now, for, make sure... Of course, you do subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast so you don't miss the other 98% of our mailbag episodes plus the other 50 or 51 regular Friday mailbag episodes and the, oh, sorry, not mailbag, regular Friday episodes and the occasional additional interview we throw in your podcast feed every now and again or a special episode just for the fun of it. But to do that, you have to go to iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or podcast one and make sure you do hit that subscribe button. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, leave us some stars, give us a rating, tell people, tell your friends. As I've always said, don't tattoo it on your body. But other than that, let people know. No graffiti either, by the way. But, you know, sign writing is always good. It goes away. It's environmentally friendly. Go with that. In the meantime, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and some marketing from us by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.